Welcome to Pete's Soup. I'm your host, Jim McCarthy. This time around, we're going to talk about bone and joint infections, osteomyelitis and septic arthritis. Osteomyelitis is actually a lot more common in kids than it is in adults, especially when you set aside all the cases that happen in adults with poorly controlled diabetes. And it's important to recognize and treat to avoid problems with growth and bone deformities, along with all the other complications that go along with any significant infection. Septic arthritis isn't as common, but it's even more important to recognize early because it can do a lot of damage in a short amount of time. When we talk about osteomyelitis in kids, we're almost always referring to hematogenous osteomyelitis, which happens when infection in the bone is seeded by bacteria in the blood. Why do kids get these episodes of asymptomatic transient bacteremia? Nobody really knows, but if you can figure it out, there might be a Nobel Prize waiting for you. We are pretty sure that kids are more susceptible to developing osteomyelitis from these episodes of bacteremia because their developing bones have a lot more vasculature than adults do. On top of that, the metaphyses are areas where the blood tends to flow more slowly. Lots of bacteremic blood moving slowly through the bone is a setup for some of that bacteria to settle in and start an infection. Once that happens, the infection can also spread from the bone to the joint, moving from osteomyelitis to septic arthritis. Osteomyelitis isn't good, but septic arthritis is even worse. Once the infection spreads into the joint, it triggers an immune response, which is exactly what's supposed to happen. The problem is that in addition to fighting the bacteria, some of the enzymes that are released also break down cartilage. Those enzymes, plus any toxins that the bacteria might be producing, can devastate a joint, doing permanent damage in a pretty short period of time. There's a lot of variability in the way osteomyelitis and septic arthritis can present. Fevers are common, but that's true for pretty much every infection. In a patient who's old enough to tell you what's going on, they'll say they have pain that's localized to one limb or one joint. Unfortunately for us as pediatricians, a lot of our patients aren't developmentally capable of giving us that much detail so we have to be detectives. Pain is the most common symptom, and if our patient can't tell us something hurts, we have to look for them to show us with things like decreased movement, limping, and refusal to bear weight. Swelling and redness also come up, although they're more common in septic joints than in osteomyelitis. A good musculoskeletal exam, looking for range of motion and tenderness in the bones and joints, will also help you narrow down where the infection might be. When you get into workup, labs don't play a very big role. Inflammatory markers are most helpful when both the ESR and CRP are elevated, and an elevated white blood cell count can be a sign of a more significant infection, but they aren't going to do much to make the diagnosis for you. CRP can be helpful for monitoring the response to treatment, so it is probably still worth getting. For diagnosing osteomyelitis and septic arthritis, imaging, and most specifically MRI, is where the money is. A 2012 study published in Insights and Imaging showed that MRI was somewhere between 82 and 100% sensitive and 75 to 99% specific for osteomyelitis, which is why it's the imaging method of choice for diagnosing bone and joint infections. Plain x-rays can help rule out other problems like fractures and sometimes pick up effusions, but any change related to osteomyelitis isn't going to show up until the infection has been active for at least five days, and even then, the changes are pretty subtle. 
CT scans aren't good for much either, mostly because of their poor soft tissue visualization. Nuclear medicine scans are more than 73% sensitive and specific for osteomyelitis, so they aren't a bad alternative to MRI, but it can be hard to distinguish osteo from septic arthritis when the images are interpreted. Ultrasound can be helpful in identifying a joint effusion, but it's not going to tell you anything beyond whether or not the fluid is there. What ultrasound can do is help guide a joint aspiration because a sample of the fluid is crucial for diagnosing a septic joint. Infected synovial fluid will usually have a white count higher than 50,000 with more than 80% neutrophils, and sending the fluid for culture will help guide your treatment. On the subject of cultures, getting orthopedics or interventional radiology involved to collect a bone sample for culture in cases of osteomyelitis can save you a lot of trouble when it comes to figuring out your long-term antibiotic plan. There are a ton of potential causes for osteomyelitis, and your patient will be better off if you can figure out exactly what bug is the problem. Staphylococcus species are the most common cause of osteomyelitis, and that includes methicillin-resistant staph, so most treatment regimens start out with fairly broad-spectrum antibiotics. Kingella kingae is another bacteria that's common in kids. It usually causes more mild symptoms, which can lead to a delay in diagnosis, but it's also a pretty wimpy bacteria that responds really well to treatment. The last thing to mention is salmonella osteomyelitis in patients with sickle cell disease because exams seem to like it a lot. Patients with sickle cell disease are the most likely to get salmonella osteomyelitis, but staph is still the most common cause of osteo in that population. It's kind of like one of those reasoning questions from the SATs or some other standardized test. If a patient has salmonella osteomyelitis, they probably have sickle cell disease. But if a patient with sickle cell has osteomyelitis, it's probably caused by staph. Again, the main point here is that while we have to start out by covering MRSA, there are a lot of potential causes for osteomyelitis. That means that unless a patient is unstable, it's a good idea to hold off on antibiotics until you can get a sample to send for culture, because otherwise you might be committing your patient to a long course of pretty strong antibiotics. Backtracking just a little bit. It's important to find out early on whether you're dealing with a septic joint or osteomyelitis because there's a big difference in the initial treatment. Osteomyelitis can almost always be treated with medication alone, while a septic joint needs to get to the operating room immediately to wash out the infected fluid. In both cases, once you get to the point of starting antibiotics, the choice for initial therapy is generally based on local resistance patterns with something to cover for both staph and strep species. For example, my hospital uses clindamycin, which has good community MRSA coverage with a little bit of strep coverage, and or cefazolin, which covers MSSA and strep species. Bone and joint infections get long courses of antibiotics, two to three weeks for septic arthritis and a minimum of four weeks for osteomyelitis. We used to do that entire course intravenously because we thought it was more effective than oral antibiotics, but now the data tells us that's not necessarily the case. The biggest study that gets cited was published by Ron Karen and his colleagues in JAMA Pediatrics in 2015. They did a retrospective review of 2,060 patients, 1,005 who transitioned to oral antibiotics, and 1,055 who had a PICC line placed for the duration of treatment. They found that the rates of treatment failure were practically the same, 5% in the oral antibiotic group, and 6% for IV therapy. More importantly, 
15% of patients on home IV antibiotics had a complication with their PICC line that required a trip to the ER, readmission to the hospital, or both. So we have data that says we should transition to oral antibiotics, but when to make that switch isn't exactly clear. The Infectious Disease Society of America just says that you can do it when the patient is, quote, stable without ongoing bacteremia, but they don't really do much to define what stable means. There is some variation from hospital to hospital and even from provider to provider. My hospital's guidelines say that the patient should be afebrile for at least 24 hours with a normal white blood cell count, a CRP that's come down 50% from its peak and has a consistent downward trend, and improvement in symptoms. And after looking around a little bit, that seems to be similar to what most other hospitals do. Once again, ambiguous recommendations mean not many test questions. So just remember that if there are oral options to cover the bacteria, you can make the switch once the patient is improving. That's all I have for you on bone and joint infections. For take-home points, remember to have a high index of suspicion for any kids with focal musculoskeletal symptoms and signs of infection. To make the diagnosis, imaging, preferably with MRI, is the way to go, and if you have any concern at all for a septic joint, you need to get a sample of the synovial fluid to determine whether or not your patient needs to go to the OR. Antibiotics can wait until samples have been collected for culture as long as the patient is stable and should include coverage for staph and strep species in the initial treatment plan. It's a long treatment course, at least two weeks for septic joints and four weeks or more for osteo, but you can and should transition to oral antibiotics once the patient is showing consistent improvement. Thanks for listening. If you like this episode, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you found us. If you have any comments or suggestions, you can email me directly at pedsoup, that's P-E-D-S-S-O-U-P, at gmail.com. I'm Jim McCarthy, and we'll be back next time with more Peds Soup.